This is The Josh Hammer Show. You know, I've lived in eight or nine cities throughout the United States. I I lost count, to be honest with you, somewhere along the way. I've moved a lot. Haven't spent a ton of time, only a handful of years, in the Midwest. But there is one Midwestern city that I have a long-standing personal and familial connection to. And that is the city of St. Louis, Missouri. My great-great-grandparents, who I, of course, never met, about 120, 130 years ago or so, back in Lithuania in Eastern Europe, they decided to pick up and move to St. Louis, of all cities, because my great-great-grandfather apparently heard that that is where you, these days, you know, go back 100, 125 years ago or so, these days, apparently, that's where you'll find a minion, which is the minimum of 10 Jewish males required for certain prayer activities. Sure enough, that's where my great-grandmother, my mother's mother's mother, was born. She became one of the first women to graduate from Washington University in St. Louis there in the 1930s, way before most women went to college. It took me a long time to actually get to St. Louis for the first time myself. I was only there for the first time a handful of years ago or so. I've been back numerous times since then, but it is with all of that in mind that we are just thrilled to welcome our newest radio affiliate 97.1 fm talk in st louis we are very grateful to trisha everding and my friend mark reardon host of the mark reardon show there at 97.1 fm talk grateful for this opportunity we of course debuted on ktth 770 am seattle washington a few months ago we'll be coast to coast guys god willing before you know it if you like what you hear go ahead and reach out and tell your local station that you want the Josh Hammer show. But for now, we are just really grateful to be on 97.1 FM talk in St. Louis. I was most recently there just a few months ago, actually. I was there in mid-November or so. I had a couple of law school events, was doing a couple of Federal Society law school talks there in St. Louis before flying to Michigan for my college talk on the Israel-Hamas conflict. We talked about that a lot on the show already, how I was shadowed down by these terrible protesters there. And St. Louis is a beautiful city. Don't get me wrong. The suburbs are beautiful. There is so much rich history there. The gateway to the West, the Oregon Trail, the the mighty Mississippi River, all of that there. But you can't help but walk around downtown St. Louis and not Clayton, Missouri. A lot of Missourians talk about Clayton as if it is downtown. They have a lot of skyscrapers, tall buildings. I mean like the actual downtown right near the Gateway Arch. You can't spend a whole lot of time walking around that part of downtown St. Louis, as I did a couple of months ago in November, without asking yourself, what the heck happened here? What went wrong? Where the urban core of one of America's great cities, one of its cities with a rich, rich tradition and heritage, how it actually got to this? The answer is shockingly simple. It is the same reason that so many other American cities have fallen into urban decay, at least in their urban course. Cities like Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Detroit, Baltimore, Atlanta, Houston, Memphis, you name it. It is one party, democratic, far left, progressive rule at the mayoral level and prosecutorial level sustained over the course of 30, 40, 50 years or so. In St. Louis, 
the damage that was done by the Soros prosecutor there, Kimberly Gardner, who, thank goodness, is no longer currently serving in that particular capacity. She's still active in the political scene. The damage done by Kim Gardner has been catastrophic to the city of St. Louis, the same, re- same exact way that Chesa Boudin was catastrophic for San Francisco before he was recalled the same way that George Gascon has been catastrophic for Los Angeles, Alvin Bragg in Manhattan and New York City. You get the idea. It's the same thing all over again. Corey Bush, the absolute idiot, part of the AOC-led squad, who is the congresswoman for downtown St. Louis, is absolutely and unequivocally part of that problem. It is frankly hard to look at some of the politicians who are elected in these districts, some of the anti-prosecution prosecutors who ascend to the level of district attorney in some of these cities. You can't help but conclude that race-based identity politics has something to do with it. And identity politics is one of the most toxic things about American culture these days. Whether we call it identity politics, whether we call it intersectionality, whether we call it wokeism, whatever noun, adjective, verb you want to use to describe it, it is here, there, and everywhere corrosive to the body politic. It is destructive to e pluribus unum out of many one. Look at what happened this past week at Harvard University. Claudine Gay finally steps down. She finally resigns from Harvard University. It's been months now of scandal for Claudine Gay. The whole world watched her disgusting testimony in the U.S. Congress in early December alongside Liz McGill of UPenn, who has also resigned, thank goodness, and Sally Kornbluth of MIT as they refused categorically and repeatedly to say that speech calling for the genocide of the Jewish people on campuses was not permissible. They refused to say that it was something that would be condemned. They couldn't do it. And then you had Chris Rufo, the intrepid investigative journalist, and some others who were able to suss out legitimate instances of plagiarism by Claudine Gay over the course of her entire rise through the ivory tower to the heights of being the president of Harvard University. Insane, by the way, that Claudine Gay has never published a book under her own name. She is, she is, or she was, I should say, president of the most prestigious, most famous university in the world. Never published a book under her own name. Go ahead and ask yourself why that is the case. The answer, again, is identity politics, intersectionality, whatever you want to call it. Absolutely atrocious stuff. And we have a big scalp here in Claudine Gay. She never should have been president in the first place. She is the shortest lived president in the history of Harvard University, a five month long presidency. By the way, her resignation letter, absolutely atrocious. Totally refused to take responsibility whatsoever for any of her actions. Made no reference whatsoever to the legitimate allegations of plagiarism that have apparently dogged her for 15, 20, 30 years. 
going back to her time in graduate school, getting her dissertation or PhD there at Harvard. There's no reference whatsoever to the fact that she shivved in the back various other black scholars over the years, which she did. I know that from people who study with her there at Harvard. We at Newsweek also ran a wonderful op-ed about it recently. Go ahead and check it out. She says nothing about the fact in her resignation letter about anti-Semitism itself, about the fact that Harvard University has become, over the past few months, something more closely approximating Hamas University. There is no indication whatsoever that she has done a modicum of self-reflection, of looking in the mirror and determining where this all went wrong. How did you go so far off the rails here, Claudine Gay? How did you end up the shortest-lived president in the history of Harvard University? But you know who she does blame or what she blames in her resignation letter? Racism. She played the race card all the way to her resignation letter. The woman who was so clearly elevated to the stature of president of Harvard University due to her race, not due to her merit, not due to her qualifications, not due to the fact that she has never published a book under her own name. She played the race card all the way to the bitter end, calling out the folks who she said were racist for coming after her. No, Claudine Gay, they came after you because you're absolutely terrible and atrocious and horrible and because you are disseminating a toxic, woke ideology with the whole DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion claptrap embedded well within it because you refuse to stand for merit and excellence and academic rigor. It is a high-profile scalp, no doubt about it. We cannot rest on our laurels. We have a long way to go until the DEI cancer is eliminated from the American University campus, from the corporate boardroom, from everywhere. It raises its ugly head. So let's celebrate this big scalp, and then let's move on to what is going to be a prolonged domestic civilizational struggle to root out and eradicate this cancer from within our midst. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. I 
I was a huge fan of Tucker Carlson's. I was on his Fox show a little over a year ago. I was there at the Heritage Foundation's 50th anniversary gala in D.C. in April, where he gave an absolutely spectacular keynote speech. Ironically, it was actually that Monday, only three days later, that he learned he was fired from Fox News. As it turns out, Tucker apparently needed the guidance or the editorial guardrails of Fox News. Because it has mostly been downhill for Tucker Carlson since then. He had Alex Jones on his program recently. Yes, that Alex Jones, the InfoWars dude. He also, when it comes to the Israel-Hamas war in Gaza, has been, shall we say, less than good. He recently joined Sagar and Jetty on Breaking Points, the show, to talk about his ongoing feud with Ben Shapiro of the Daily Wire. Let's take a listen to what Tucker had to say to Sagar. So I, I don't really care, but I, I did think it showed like the level of not just corruption, which I knew, but of like emotional instability and craziness. I mean, there are people, and I stopped reading any of it, but there are people on the right who have spent the last two months every single day focused on a conflict in a foreign country as our own country becomes dangerously unstable on the brink of financial collapse with tens of millions of people who shouldn't be here in the country. We don't know their identities or the purpose of their being here. Like stuff that could destroy the country for real and make it impossible for my kids to live here. They've said nothing about that and they're focused with laser intensity on foreign conflicts. And I'm like, at some point, I've got four kids. If I'm so caught up in the problems of my neighbor's children and completely ignoring my own children as they get addicted to drugs and kill themselves. You know, I'm not against helping my neighbor's kids, but clearly I don't love my kids. I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's the only logical conclusion and they don't care about the country at all. And that's, you know, that's kind of their prerogative, but I do because I have no choice because I'm from here. My family's been here hundreds of years. I plan to stay here. Like, I, I'm shocked by how little they care about the country, and including the person you mentioned. And I, I can't imagine how someone like that could get an audience of people who claim to care about America, because he doesn't. So there's a lot to unpack here, to put it mildly. First of all, emotional instability. If you were the kind of person who saw the footage, any footage, or if you read about what happened on October 7th, 2023... 12 to 1400 murdered, mass rapes, babies butchered in ovens. If you were the kind of person who looks at that and your conclusion is not, wow, what unbelievable Nazi esque barbaric savages, but rather your conclusion is, oh my God, you're emotionally unstable for kind of having like some tears or whatever. Are you serious? I mean, at a certain level, like, are, are, are you a human being? Are you someone who is even remotely in touch with the very moral faculties that make us human in the first instance that separate us from the animal kingdom, for God's sake? Really, Tucker? But more importantly, towards the end here, and when he's talking to Sagar about the, quote, person you mentioned, he is indeed talking about Ben Shapiro. Tucker says that he's shocked how little they care about the country, the United States. He's calling 
people like Ben Shapiro, who here is just a useful proxy for right-wing pro-Israel Jews, and frankly, many right-wing pro-Israel Christians, he's calling them something less than American. At best, he is calling us, and I am using the word us here deliberately, he is calling us, at best, unpatriotic. At worst, he is calling us so detached from this country, this amazing, amazing country, the United States of America, that he is questioning our right to live here, to vote here, to be here as U.S. citizens, to take part in democracy, in civics, in all that a U.S. citizen ought to do. This is beyond disgusting. To say that this would be playing into some of the worst anti-Semitic stereotypes of dual loyalty and this and that. I mean, Tucker Carlson is literally sounding like Ilhan Omar here. When Ilhan Omar first got to Congress and she was immediately saying that, oh, the Jews or the pro-Israel Christians, they don't care about America. They just, they just care about this tiny country halfway around the world. That is really no different whatsoever than what Tucker Carlson is doing right here in this clip that you just heard. Moreover, the idea that you can't have strong, emotional, tactical, strategic foreign policy views about a foreign conflict, a foreign country, a U.S. ally, and so forth, while simultaneously being passionate and animated about what is happening here on the home front, insane. Absolutely insane. Does Tucker Carlson think that we are so stupid that we cannot hold simultaneous thoughts in our head at the same time when it comes to domestic and foreign issues? You know, Tucker is very passionate about the drug overdose crisis in America, about fentanyl deaths. You know what? So am I. My cousin, may his memory be a blessing, Zachary Kalish, overdosed and died from fentanyl in December 2017. I was in Hawaii waiting to get into Pearl Harbor. How's that for being patriotic, Tucker, by the way? Waiting to get in line in Pearl Harbor. It was 5 a.m. Hawaiian time when we got that phone call from our cousins in Boston, Massachusetts, that my cousin had died of a drug overdose. I talk about this issue all the freaking time to elected officials, friends, whoever will listen. It is appalling beyond belief. That America went from 5,000 drug overdose deaths in 1992 to over 106 to 110,000 last year. You can absolutely care about both of these issues, Tucker Carlson. How do I know? Tucker, if you're listening, because I emailed with you about this issue in the summer of 2018. You were kind enough to respond back then. It was a very nice email I got back. I'm not sure what's happened since then there. This is disgusting and loathsome stuff here. I am very, very afraid of where certain segments of even the American right are going down this rabbit hole. This conflict is not Russia-Ukraine. It is not a proxy war, a feckless proxy war against a nuclear-armed hegemon. It is a straightforward, morally dichotomous, good-versus-evil conflict featuring one of the United States' greatest allies in the world the state of Israel, going up against modern-day Nazis, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Islamists, that is Hamas. The good side, our ally, is not asking for anything other than bare-bones minimum support. 
we owe it to them, Tucker Carlson, and we can also, yes, care about fentanyl here on the domestic front. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The notion that the United States can simply bury its head in the sand and not care about any foreign country, about any foreign conflict whatsoever, is absolutely bat crap crazy. Now, it is true that in his farewell address back in the 1790s, George Washington did warn the American people. He said, beware of, quote, foreign entanglements of permanent alliances multilateral organizations, things like that. And absolutely sure, fair enough. In fact, that is why, or at least partially why, many of us are indeed skeptical of multilateral alliances like the United Nations. Many of us actually do not want to see NATO expand. Frankly, NATO has outlived its usefulness over three decades ago. NATO was formed to oppose the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union dissolved into the Russian Federation in 1991. So that advice from George Washington is very well taken. On the other hand, America post-World War II is a global superpower. We have commercial interests, we have energy interests, we have interests all around the world. Go ahead and Google how many United States military bases exist all around the world. Now, if it is your earnest, honest-to-God position that the United States should shut down all of its overseas military bases, go ahead and make that pitch. It's not living in reality. There is no first or even second world country that fails to have some sort of base or home of operations overseas anywhere, but at least go ahead and make that argument. On the other hand, the opposite extreme is, of course, also totally buffoonish. The swashbuckling neoconservatives, the Don Rumsfelds of the world, Bill Kristol, folks like that who have never seen a war they don't like, Lindsey Graham being a contemporary modern example in the U.S. Senate, folks who are always chomping at the bit to go to war with an enemy of America. I've seen some recent writings from folks like John Bolton, Michael Rubin, that are 
really not hiding the ball in calling for all-out war against Iran, who is the puppet master behind essentially all the evil currently happening in the Middle East and, for that matter, largely around the world. Neoconservatism is also totally wrong. One of the refrains that we like to say on this show is to know what time it is. The United States for a period of time after the collapse of the Soviet Union, was the sole global superpower. That lasted for maybe 20 to 25 years. Because the United States is no longer the sole global superpower. China is absolutely, unequivocally, a global superpower right now as well. And in a bipolar global order... Not a unipolar moment, but a bipolar order with two global superpowers. America does have to think more strategically. When China is flying spy balloons across the country, which, oh, by the way, we just learned a week or two ago that that the Biden administration was lying to us about why that spy balloon was shot down. They hit the ball on that one for a long time. When they are flying spy balloons across the country, when China is now they're threatening the, threatening the Philippines, who the heck knows when they're going to go into Taiwan? I would speculate sooner rather than later. America does have to pick and choose its battles, does have to pick and choose its fights. The notion that we can be everywhere at all times, that we have unlimited ammunition, that we have unlimited artillery, tanks, warplanes, or for that matter, unlimited recruits, that we can, we can just keep on tapping into our volunteer military, which, oh, by the way, has been tragically lacking in volunteer recruits for years as they shove this woke ideology garbage down our throats, as they assign Ibram X. Kendi, Robin D'Angelo, white fragility, anti-racism crap, and as they reach out to the all-inclusive transgender audience among us, U.S. military recruitment has been suffering. So, yes, it is absolutely true that the U.S. cannot be everywhere at all times. The notion that we can be everywhere at all times, though, is just as foolish as the idea that we simply cannot care about any other country or any other development around the world. Do you know who actually understands that despite his rhetoric to the contrary? Tucker Carlson himself. We know that because Tucker Carlson has recently visited Numerous foreign countries, among them Spain, Argentina, and Hungary. It seems that there is only one particular country and one particular conflict that Tucker Carlson would encourage his fellow Americans to not care about. You do have to ask yourself at a certain point why that is the case. The conflict in the Middle East continues. It shows no sign of slowing down anytime soon. On the contrary, it shows lots and lots of signs of heating up. This past week, Israel took out a high-ranking Hamas commander in Beirut, Lebanon. That commander was viewed as one of the leaders of Hamas in Judea and Samaria in the West Bank, distinct from Gaza itself. But it is very important that they took him out in Beirut, Lebanon. Beirut, of course, is the home of Hezbollah, the Iran-funded Shiite 
terrorist organization that controls large swaths of southern and central Lebanon that has a much, much more dangerous and larger arsenal than Hamas has in Gaza, and that many have thought Israel is going to have to go to war with sooner rather than later. So the fact that Israel took out a high-ranking Hamas commander in Beirut, in the home of Hezbollah, there in Lebanon, is an unmistakable shot across the bow to Hassan Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, there in Lebanon. We will see how much the Northern Front continues to escalate. But we are, we are indeed getting very close to something closely approximating all-out war there on the Israeli-Lebanese border. At the same time, it's getting hot inside the Islamic Republic of Iran itself, inside the head of the snake. This past Wednesday, over 100 killed in explosions near the grave of former Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps arch-terrorist Qasem Soleimani. They were gathered there to mark the four-year anniversary of Soleimani's death. He being the former Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps arch-terrorist killed by Trump administration orchestrated drone strike in Baghdad, Iraq in January of 2020. Over 100 killed there in those explosions. Israel did not formally take credit for this strike. They have a general policy of not formally taking credit for strikes, whether they are in Iran, whether they are in Damascus, Syria, Beirut, Lebanon, and so forth there. But make no mistake about it, this, this obviously was, was from the Israelis. At the same time as all this going on, you have the continuing unraveling of the situation in the Red Sea. One of the most important shipping lanes for global commerce and for oil and natural gas in particular. Where the Houthi rebels, who are the Iran-funded rebels there in Yemen, they have been the Iran-funded half of the Yemeni civil war going against the Saudi-funded half for the past nine, ten years ago or so, have, they've effectively taken over the Red Sea, which comprises roughly 10% of global commerce. Roughly 10% flows through those very important straits going up to the Suez Canal there. Allegedly, there has been a multilateral force, allegedly a U.S.-led force, trying to contain and push back against the Houthis. It is unclear, at best, what they are doing to actually accomplish that goal. Folks, the same reason why the United States should seek to wind down its involvement and really should have been seeking to wind down its involvement for a long time now in the Russia-Ukraine war is actually exactly the same reason why the median Americans simply must care about all of this going on right now in the Middle East. Even hold aside for a moment the fact that there have been well over 100 now strikes from Iran-backed terror proxy groups in Iraq and Syria on U.S. military bases. Literally over 100. Hold that aside even for a minute now. The basic reason why you have to care about what is happening there in the Middle East and you should care more about what is happening in the Russia-Ukraine theater right now 
is that from a narrow U.S. national interest perspective, which is the only proper and rational lens through which to view U.S. foreign policy and national security, one concretely and tangibly affects those interests, the other does not. There is not, nor has there been, for a year and a half now, a concrete U.S. national interest in supporting Ukraine's effort to reclaim every square inch of disputed land in far eastern Ukraine right down to the final inch in these 50-50 ethnically divided Russian-Ukrainian towns. On the other hand, the U.S. obviously needs something remotely resembling stability in the Middle East when it comes to oil and natural gas, when it comes to the free flow of goods and, and commerce in general through the Red Sea, the Eastern Mediterranean Sea, the Persian Gulf, and so forth there. The Biden administration is so utterly terrified of sleepwalking, of accidentally walking into World War III with Iran and America's enemies that it categorically refuses to do anything. It has barely fired back at all after over 100 attacks by Iran-backed groups on those U.S. military bases in Iraq and Syria. It has barely done anything whatsoever to protect commercial vessels, whether they are American-flagged vessels or flagged by other countries there in the Red Sea, the Arabian Sea, and so forth. It is not being a neoconservative to suggest that at some point, if you are so utterly terrified of doing anything to protect your tangible national security, energy security, and so forth interests. It is not being a neoconservative to say that if you fail to do anything whatsoever to protect that, then you are not necessarily just simply capitulating to the enemy, which you are, but you're actually going to tangibly make life worse for your own people back home. You will see that in rising energy prices, all the oil tankers that are going to have to go down sail around South Africa, down the southern tip of the African continent, rather than sail through the Suez Canal there. You're going to see that in your oil prices. You're going to see that reflected in the price of everything because energy prices literally affect everything in the world. So it actually is possible to tease out these conflicts from one another. Contra the Tucker Carlson's of the world, Foreign policy actually is a very nuanced topic. It is possible to walk and chew gum at the same time. It is possible to approach numerous foreign conflicts and arrive at very different conclusions as to what the proper level of U.S. support should be. It is entirely reasonable, indeed it is necessary, to conclude that as we begin here in 2024, the United States should seek a viable off-ramp in Russia, Ukraine, just as it must back our allies in the Middle East, Israel and the moderate Sunni Arab countries to the hilt in their fight against existential, barbaric, radical Islamic savagery. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The Josh Hammer Show. It's Ah! Hammer Time. Go! Google is slashing its DEI programs. So by mid-2023, the DEI-related job postings at Google had declined from 44% from the year prior. The last month for which we have data is a couple months ago in November 2023. And it had dropped 23% on an annualized basis year over year. This is part of a broader trend. It is not just Google, but as part of a broader trend, the Wall Street Journal had a lengthy article on this over the summer, how there has been a slashing of these DEI bureaucracies all across corporate America over the past year or so. It is particularly delicious that it is happening at a company like Google, which is absolutely one of the heads of the woke liberal Hydra. Google is one of the most progressive leftist companies Frankly, not just in the country, but in the world. I mean, if you go back to the 2016 presidential election, there was a PhD by the name of Robert Epstein who testified in Congress a year, year and a half or so after the 2016 election that based on his area of expertise, and this is a guy, by the way, who's a Hillary Clinton voter in 2016, he testified that he thought that Google, through its own search engine algorithmic manipulation, had actually moved up to three million votes from Trump to Hillary in 2016, simply by ways that it deliberately made the algorithm favor pro-Hillary content and disfavor pro-Trump content. So Google, I mean, you know, couldn't have happened to a better person here when it comes to slashing the DEI bureaucracy there at Google. We see this across the states as well. University of Wisconsin in Wisconsin, you know, University of Wisconsin, if you've ever been to Madison, Wisconsin, you've probably seen the pink haired weirdos there walking around the college green. One of the most left wing campuses in America. Nonetheless, the Republican controlled legislature there in Wisconsin passed a law that was ultimately signed that would gut DEI at the University of Wisconsin. And we saw that happen there as well. That just went into effect within the past couple of weeks. Greg Abbott down in Texas passed a similar piece of legislation. So whether it is at the state public level or in the private level, companies like Google, the American right is winning the fight against DEI. At this point, every time you see the euphemism DEI, which technically stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion, but every time you see it, You should think racism because the proponents of the DEI regime, the apparatchiks who subscribe to this toxic ideology, they may think that they are opposing racism. They may think that they are, quote unquote, anti-racist. They may think that they are on the right side of history. In reality, they are little more than race hustlers. How do we know? Because 
That's literally what they say. Look at Claudine Gay resigning from Harvard University this past week, playing the race card to the very, very bitter end, blaming her opponents, coming after her for failing to decry anti-Semitism and for being a serial plagiarist, calling them just racist. Absolute garbage. I am happy that Google is gutting DEI from within. Seattle BLM Garden closed due to vandalism, drug use, and homelessness. So, there are a few cities that were as ravaged by the Antifa Black Lives Matter protests during 2020 as the city of Seattle. It feels like a long time ago that there was the the autonomous zone or whatever it was that they were calling it. It was like a five by six area block or so where the rioters essentially set up camp. They said that we are trying to secede from the city of Seattle. We're trying to secede from Washington State, whatever it is. By the way, that Capitol Hill autonomous zone, it became just an absolute cesspool of crime, of drugs, of petty larceny, of all sorts of more violent and property crimes there. I mean, I mean, who could have ever possibly seen that coming, right? When you actually say that we are hereby not allowing in the police, what do you think is going to happen, guys? We're obviously going to get more lawlessness there. It's actually amazing to me that we're still feeling the repercussions of this. So this BLM garden in Seattle presumably flourished during that horrific summer of hell, that summer of 2020 there in Seattle. At this point, it has been destroyed due to an increase in public health and public safety issues. So the translation for that, the translation of public health and public safety issues is that they saw way, way, way too many needles interspersed on the sidewalks there. They saw way, way too many acts of, of violence, perhaps perpetrated by people who were not facing justice. Anyway, I am happy for this. Unfortunately, we have not seen anything remotely resembling justice for the property owners whose stores were burned down, vandalized during the summer of 2020. Has there been one person, has there been one person who has actually been the face of the Black Lives Matter riots? Has any prosecutor anywhere actually tried to make someone be the avatar, be the symbol of all that America suffered that summer? You know, certainly the other way around, Derek Chauvin, the cop who had the knee there with George Floyd, you know, the, the great martyr, St. George Floyd, Minneapolis, certainly Derek Chauvin became the avatar in the other direction, became the face of what led to America's great, quote unquote, racial reckoning that summer. But we don't have any kind of avatar the other way around. It really kind of makes you think why no conservative prosecutor has tried to do that. Here's how much federal diversity trainings cost taxpayers in 2023. Well, spoiler alert, taxpayers were on the hook for more than 163 million dollars. This is federal taxpayer money spent on diversity trainings in the federal bureaucracy in the year 2023. The Air Force, Navy, ICE, National Park Service, NIH, DOD, the list goes on and on and on. The government bodies that were shelling out millions of dollars to make your federal taxpayer funded employees and bureaucrats what? More anti-racist? Well, no, they were trying to make them actually more racist to go back to what we were just saying a few minutes ago with DEI. This is your taxpayer dollars, folks, literally being used to make your employees hate white people more. That's it. That is the purpose. They might call these diversity trainings the sort of thing they're trying to make you feel more inclusive to more understand your peers more, your peers who come from other cultures, other nationalities, other races, sexual orientations. No. What diversity and inclusion amounts to in contemporary America, whether it is at Google or whether it is at the Pentagon, amounts to anti-white, anti-Christian, anti-Asian, anti-Jewish bigotry. 
period, full stop, end of story. It is disgusting that your U.S. taxpayers are funding this. God willing, it will stop soon after a Republican hopefully takes office come November 2024. Finally, California launches LGBTQ training for pharmacists. Yes, for pharmacists, which leads to the obvious question of why? Why do pharmacists and pharmacy technicians actually need LGBTQ training. Why do they need it any more than any other profession? Apparently, they need to actually take this training when they renew their licenses every two years. That is how important the absolutely idiotic, woke-infested lawmakers out in Sacramento have deemed the pharmacist profession there. I have no idea what it is about pharmacists that allegedly they need this training there. I mean, is there some great homophobic conspiracy of CVS and Walgreens pharmacists there in San Francisco and Los Angeles? Is that why they need more sensitivity training there? Are they trying to make pharmacists such that if someone comes in with a masculine voice but feminine clothes, then they need to necessarily lift the skirt to check what's underneath? Absolute garbage, total, utter insanity there. Unfortunately, par for the course for California. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion.